Happy Asian American and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Welcome to the Asian American and Asian Research Institute's Finding Lecture Series Online Edition. I'm Anthony Wong, Program Coordinator of the Institute. We're honored to have with us Alvin Ng to celebrate the book launch of his just published memoir, Our Laundry, Our Town, My Chinese American Life from Flushing to the Downtown Stage and Beyond. Uh, Alvin's memoir published by Fordham University Press and Empire State Editions decodes and processes the fractured urban oracle bones of his growing up in Flushing, Queens uh, during the 1970s to his most recent solo performance of Our Town and The Last Emperor of Flushing in his uh, family's ancestral uh, uh, hometown in Guangdong, China, and also uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, Alvin Ng is a native New York City playwright, performer, and educator. His plays and performances have been seen off-Broadway throughout the United States, as well as in Paris, Hong Kong, and Guangzhou, China. Alvin is the author and editor of the oral history and play anthology, Tokens, the New York City Asian American Experience on Stage. Uh, no Passport Press recently published Three Trees, the first of his portrait series, uh, portrait play series of historical dramas of our artists. He was awarded a 2022 Lower Manhattan uh, CC Creative uh, Engagement Grant for a Hong Kong Handover 25 Years Later Symposium in conjunction with his acoustic punk rockateur solo show, Here Comes Johnny Yen Again, or How I Kick Punk. And coming up on May 24th, Alvin will be celebrating his 60th birthday. We wish him an early happy birthday and please welcome Alvin Ng. Thank you everyone for tuning in today. It's a um... It's quite. A, it's been quite a week. The uh, the book is out. It's, um, it's sort of surreal that it's finished now too. So thank you for joining us. Uh, I'll be reading from two sections in the book, and then we'll have a discussion with uh, Anthony, and then we'll have a question and answer period. So I hope you will uh, have some questions. Put them in the uh, question or in the chat, and we will get to it. Okay. So I'm going to be reading uh, first from uh, chapter one. It's called uh, "The Urban Oracle Bones of Our Laundry: Channeling China's Last Emperor." and rock and roll's first opera. While I've been blessed to have always had a roof over my head and the honor of living with loved ones, while I was growing up, homelessness was a constant spiritual state. A child's longing to belong is one of the most powerful forces and relentless muses on earth. In every culture, belonging has many different nuances of meaning, of resonance. What and who exactly constitutes that destination of longing, changes with every age and in childhood with every grade. What never seems to change is the fear that we never quite arrive, and when or if we do, it only lasts for a fleeting time and was really never quite what we expected. These memoir portraits are an attempt to decode and process the urban oracle bones from growing up as the youngest of five children in an immigrant Chinese family that ran a hand laundry. Our family was born of an arranged marriage, and our laundry was in the Flushing, Queens neighborhood of that singular universe that was New York City in the 1970s. Like many children of immigrant or other family origins in late 20th century America, I was constantly seeking American frames of reference with which to contextualize my own outsider experiences and sensibilities. I was born on May 24th, 1962, as Anthony told you, almost um, 60 years ago. In the long-since-shuttered Parsons Hospital at the corner of Parsons Boulevard and 35th Avenue, and there are people here from Flushing on the, um, remember that's up the block from Flushing High School. May 24th is also the birthday of Bob Dylan, Patti LaBelle, 
Tommy Chong of the 1970 stoner comedy team Cheech and Chong and Queen Victoria. It's also the anniversary of the day that the Brooklyn Bridge was first opened to traffic in 1883. And one of Flushing's most famous icons, the New York Mets, was also born in 1962. So me and the Mets, we're both going to be 60. Although Flushing became New York City's second Chinatown during the 80s, a.k.a. the People's Republic of Flushing, in the 60s and 70s, we were one of only a, a fistful of Chinese families there. The flushing of my childhood was still basking in the afterglow of the post-World War II suburban baby boom. You see, that boom was celebrated at the 1964-65 World's Fair in Flushing Meadows Park. And that's my family there at the, at the World's Fair. Um, uh, standing in the back row, it's my brother Gene, my brother Vic, my dad, sister Jane, and my mom, who you find out is called the Empress Mother in this book. And the front row is my brother Herman, and that's me in the red striped shirt. And there we are, um, yes, back in the uh, back in the day at the, at, the, at the World's Fair. The World's Fair was the zenith, the zenith of the American century when anything, anything was supposed to be possible. In this euphoric mood, Flushing immigrants were the last, the last wave who gave up everything. They had forsaken their customs, their language. Many would have changed their appearance if they could just to get a whiff of the American dream. Now, the underside of growing up in this post-World War II euphoria of the world's fair, as well as in the shadows of the Cold War, was that China was looming as Uncle Sam's communist public enemy number two. Under this cloud, our laundry frequently became a target of salvos for verbal abuse like Cheeky Cho, go home. So as you can imagine, as a child in this hostile milieu, I never envisioned ever even seeing foot in China, let alone perform a memoir monologue there called The Last Emperor of Flushing that I wrote in English based on my family. This monologue was inspired in part by Thornton Wilder's Americana play, Our Town. I also never would have imagined that this Americana work has some Chinese artistic influence and roots. That's me and uh, my mom, um, Amphrey's mother, in the laundry. And this is also uh, been used for the um, cover of the book. And it's the photograph, I believe the photographer is on this call. That's um, my brother, Gene Ang, took this photo. Great photographer. Our Fujie Chin Chinese hand laundry was a long, narrow, railroad-style store that stretched from the parking lot in the rear to Flushing's bustling Union Street in the front. Uh, for Flushing, current Flushing residents, it's uh, where the uh, two doors down from where the H Mart is, and H Mart seems to be taking over the whole block. So anyway, that's where it was. Going from the back door to the front door, the way we entered every morning, the rear room was the family area, comprising a kitchen, dining, and napping area. This is where we all ate and where the kids did their homework and probably spent more time goofing off than doing our homework between laundry chores. The middle room, which is what this photograph is, the middle room is where the ironing and wrapping of laundered garments took place. The middle room had long, rectangular padded tables for ironing and sorting laundry and large white metal sewing stations. This was the largest room and also primarily the court of our mother, Toy Lan Chin Ang, or the Empress Mother, as she's anointed, in the last Emperor Flushing. In this middle room, the Empress Mother took her breaks, read her Chinese newspapers, and listened to her beloved 
Cantonese opera records. The front room was where our family, or what I call in this book, the Ang Dynasty, this is where we interacted with the outside world. After entering through the front door, customers stood behind a wall-to-wall wooden counter, and this is where they dropped off their dirty laundry and later picked up the clean laundry in a few days. Directly opposite our laundry's door, there was um, was a sort of a a counter that uh, had a drawbridge. drawbridge. It was a a cutaway countertop and and, um, and a gated swing door. This is where we received deliveries and also where we received children coming home from school. This was also the smallest room in the domain of our dad, Ging Wa Eng. It was romanized as King Wa Eng. Um, between greeting customers and tending to all matters of laundry business, this is where he listened to WCBS News Radio 880 on that small transistor radio where he read the daily news. And then on most busy Saturdays, the entire family would be in this room tending to customers. And this is, um, this is the, uh, the front room. Um, my back is to the counter where the customers came in, and I'm sitting at the foot of uh, where my dad's working. As usual, I'm, I'm, I probably just finished a snack. I'm probably eating all the time. I was eating all the time as a kid. I still do. And um, so this is us in the laundry. Because dad spoke English and the empress mother did not, dad's station in our laundry and on our family was on the front line. Dad's was usually the first face customers would see as they entered the laundry. Always dressed in his white button-down shirt with a pen holder on the left front shirt pocket, he stood behind the counter almost like a target and went eyeball to eyeball. Each and every customer, hustler, and angry war veteran who walked through the door. People would routinely open the door and take pot shots like, can you speak Englishy, Charlie? No tiki, no shirty? Dad would take one for the family and grow sullen and speechless. The Empress Mother, however, would respond to these taunts the lusty Aya Mo Yung Bakui Kasi Nden. Useless white devil ghosts. You could step on shit and it will not bend. This as translated from the delicate Toisan dialect of Cantonese surely one of the overlooked romance languages of the 20th century. And just a note, as to you'll hear in this reading, and when you read the book, uh, the phonetics are mine, they're not official phonetics. And my, can- my choice on Cantonese is pretty awful. So that's a, a little bit of a slippery slope. The Empress Mother Station in our laundry and in our family abutted the world that divided the front room public business space from the private family space. Because the Empress Mother could stay behind my dad, she got to keep her fiery Toysan core together. And from the late 19th to the late 20th century, 80% of Chinese immigrants to America emigrated from Toysan. During this time, Toysan was the dominant dialect and aesthetic of the Chinatowns and working-class North American Chinese communities. In this light and in that era, the Toysanese were very much like the Sicilians. Both groups were southern outcasts, mainly farmers, who were looked down upon as being too loud, too belligerent, too uncouth and uncultured by their supposedly more sophisticated governing northern brethren. Guangdong and Sicily are also geographically separated from their respective mainlands. Guangdong is isolated by a foreboding mountain range and until the early 20th century was accessible only by sea. This separation and isolation 
instilled a staunch independent spirit in its people. In North America, Toyson towns, like Sicilian enclaves, operated under their own rules, regulations, and justice systems. When words, deeds, and even laws failed, there was always the meat cleaver. While I never saw my parents pull actual meat cleavers on each other, I did witness their weekly, sometimes daily, tremors of psychological warfare on each other grow more viciously antagonistic week after week. To escape the oft-times suffocating and intimidating environment of our laundry, thankfully, my brother Herman and I bonded and created a joyous world of our own through the power of On the second floor of the master's department store on the corner of Main Street and 37th Avenue in downtown Flushing, and this is um, me and my brother Herman in much later years, but as you can see, the uh, our rock and roll bond really lasted our whole life. And we'll talk a little more about Herman later on, but uh, this is us in, in the 21st century. But um, it all started here back in Flushing. And for those of uh, the Flushing residents, there used to be a huge master's store at uh, 37th Avenue Main Street. And I'm not sure what it is now, but that's where they used to sell records. And uh, as a six-year-old kid, I somehow broke away from my older siblings and sprinted over to the music and records department. I was barely able to reach the counter, but somehow I plopped the holiday or birthday $1 bill on the counter and said, Hey Jude and Revolution by the Beatles. Surprise clerk. First looked up to my older siblings, who by this point had caught up with me to confirm my purchase. They did. And just as I don't exactly remember how I had a $1 bill in my pocket, I also don't remember how I knew to ask for both songs of what I perceived to be a double A-sided single. I just did. But my second record purchase one year later of a full LP album, yes, a vinyl LP album, it's actually a double album, forever changed and strongly influenced the futures of Herman and me. Everybody on the block is talking about Tommy, raved Herman. The Who are even going to play the whole thing at Woodstock. We have to get it. But six bucks for an album, I asked, now being the seasoned, suspicious music consumer. It's a double album, just like the White Album, Herman carefully presented his claim. And it's only on sale at Corvettes. Corvettes is so far away and it's pouring out, I objected. It's eight plus tax at Record Spec or King Carol on Main Street, Herman rebutted. And for any Old refreshing folks, you might remember those stores. I don't know, Herm. Al, we got to do it. The rain's letting up. It'll be worth every cent, I promise, Herman made his closing argument. Oh, okay. I reluctantly handed over my hard-saved laundry salary allowance to Herman, putting our combined kitty over the magic $7 threshold. Remember, there was, of course, tax to pay on records. And off we rode on our Schwinn banana seat bikes through three neighborhoods at over 10 miles round trip through a lighter but still steady rain to EJ Corvette in Douglaston, the only store in Northeast Queens where Herman and I could afford to buy Tommy. As it would in so many instances throughout our life, Herman did the heavy lifting of tucking the double album inside his windbreaker to safely transport Tommy home. After deep listening to the Who's the Who's and Rock and Roll's first opera, particularly to the transcendent Listening to You finale, a majestic moment where guru and disciple, Svengali and puppet, audience and artist are all united one 12-bar rock and roll nirvana. 
Tommy's context became our context for everything. Herman was right. It was worth every cent. Herman and I started quoting the lyrics from Tommy to each other to the point where those lyrics became virtually our entire vocabulary. We wandered around Flushing, ended in Manhattan's Chinatown on Sundays with our parents, and imagined connections between our two most familiar stomping grounds and the Who's Native London neighborhood of Shepherd's Bush. After witnessing some heinous screaming match between Dad and Empress Mother in either our laundry or in Chinatown, Herman and I would instinctively look to each other and say, how do you think he does it? I don't know. By mimicking the pinball wizard vocal interplay of Tommy's principal composer, Who Guitar Pete Townsend, and their mighty lead vocalist, Roger Daltrey, we found a favorite pastime. We also found a way to deflect some of life's unpleasantries with the mighty shields of rock and roll. As I grew to love Tommy, I became entranced with it. I would listen to it over and over and draw pictures inspired by that. The Empress Mother encouraged my drawing and let me do this alongside her in the large middle room of her all laundry when she would take her breaks. Repeatedly listening to Tommy while alternately gazing at the album cover artwork and drawing my own little pictures completely captivated my nine-year-old psyche and mind, deepening the spell with each plane. But inevitably, my reverie would be broken by a bigger power. The Empress Mother drowning out Tommy with what my nine-year-old self called that dreaded pots and pans music. This is what cultured people call Cantonese opera. And yes, in the early 1970s, the Ang Dynasty was probably the only American household in which the kids were pleading with their parents to please turn that noise down. But in that sacred back room, the family room, we're not blessing you with shrill morality tales of supernatural Cantonese opera characters. The Empress Mother would frequently lecture me on the ways of the world beyond my little laundry fiefdom. Mo Hongen Ong All in a Hongen Oki. Mo Hongen Ong There's no good people out there. They don't feel for people. All the good people you will ever need are right here at home. There's no good people out there. So for the next 30 years, through the sweeping worldwide changes of the 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s, within the walls of the Ang Dynasty, the song remained the same for the dominating Empress Mother and her obliging last emperor of a youngest son. We could have lived in the 1870s or the 1780s or the 1690s. Over half a century earlier and half a world away, China's actual last emperor, Asin Goro Puyi, was receiving similar information. In 1908, Puyi was thrust onto the emperor's throne at age three to become an unknowing pawn in a ruthless war being waged by his manipulative, self-serving elders. Puyi ruled for only what would become the final decade of the Qing dynasty. China's last emperor then spent most of his life trying to solve the riddle of his birthright and a legacy he was born into but never asked for just like the Who's Tommy. For the first quarter century of Puyi's life, that meant his trying to be reinstated as emperor and returning his family to its former glory. 
For the first quarter century of my life, it meant living in constant struggle with my ethnicity as part of my longing to belong. And, um, you know, history never stops, of course, it keeps moving. And I'm going to read now from uh, chapter 10. It's called uh, Trip the Light, Gorgeous Mosaic, uh, Double Happiness, Discovering Playwriting and Activism. But it's been an amazing week in addition to the book being published um, just this past Tuesday. It's what an honor. I want to thank everyone at Fordham University Press. Um, it's, um, I had a, a play called The Gong Hei Kid and a song called Rock Me Gong Hei, which, is, which we'll hear in a minute. Um, obviously inspired by um, public enemies, Fight the Power, you know, the song from Do the Right Thing. And just last night, I was part of a poetry series called Poetry in New York at the great uh, book club bar in the East Village. And in the crowd was a member of a public enemy. So I was like, oh, my God. But uh, thankfully, they liked it. So uh, it's amazing how it keeps going on. And uh, this will get an idea. Here's a, here's a slide of me um, as the, um, the Gongye kid back in the 20th century, back in 1990. So, yes, that was me uh, back then in, uh, in the 20th century. Uh, I call this my punk rap character, the Gungha Kid. And uh, chapter 10 actually begins with uh, two verses from that. So I will attempt an, an a cappella spoken word version of this. Ding, 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 gone. Lose that shit. This ain't the mainland. I'm the Gungha Kid. Hope you understand. Don't do no kowtowing on the rickshaw. So don't be talking no dragons or the Great Wall. I ain't good in that. I don't know Kung Fu. So don't fall confused or Fu Manchu. So don't mess with me or call me Bruce Lee. Ain't no one better than Kid Gungha. Rock me, Gungha. Rock me, Gungha. Rock me, Gungha. We'll go to the last verse. Yellow. Fever was a lot in this country. Now with the so-called model minority. Truly don't mean shit if you think about it. But plenty still despise our slanty eyes. Don't overcompensate for your sorry state. You can't keep us in the laundry or the railroad track. Because it takes a nation of billions to hold us people back. Rock me going, hey. Rock me going, hey is the finale to my punk rock musical, The Gung Hey Kid. It is also an homage to public enemies fight the power and do the right thing. The 1989 Spike Lee joint, in which the song ignites the opening credits, along with some spectacular raw, wild-style dancing from the one and only Rosie Perez. People's Lives Are Like Dreams, the prologue and epilogue, is a traditional Cantonese lullaby that the Empress Mother used to sing around our laundry and in both Flushing Palaces of the Yang Dynasty in our Toysan Cantonese. These two lyrics, they represent the contours of my disposition during the late 1980s, early 1990s multiculturalism movement. In New York City, this era was famously celebrated as the gorgeous mosaic by our first black mayor, the late Honorable David Dinkins. The gorgeous mosaic era redefined the American frame to which I had been longing to belong my entire life as well as my outlook onto the world at large and Flushing in particular. And concurrent with the city going through this major change, and this time uh, Flushing was also going through major change, primarily because uh, in the late 70s, the immigration quota got changed from the, uh, so suddenly countries like uh, Hong Kong, the People's Republic of China, and Taiwan, they used to share like one quota, like they used to call the China quota, but that was uh, spread out to so many more immigrants um, and somehow a lot of Chinese developers um, caught up with a lot of the uh, 
particular immigrants from Taiwan. And so Flushing, that was the beginning of uh, the big change how Flushing became the second Chinatown. But uh, before that, it really resembled like uh, that Bruce Springsteen song, My Hometown, with all these shuttered up doors and everything. So it really saved, uh, saved Flushing. And that was a big part of that. The number eight holds special significance for the Chinese. It is a homonym of good fortune and a symbol of good luck and long life. Thus, 1988 portended to be a good year to start new things as well as to renew older ones. It was also the year of the dragon. Traditionally, the dragon symbolizes power, nobleness, honor, luck, and success. So alongside making the transition from the music biz to director of public relations for Asian Cinevision, and at this point, we should point out that uh, Asian Cinevision, one of the co-founders was the late Honorable Dr. Thomas Tam, and uh, Dr. Thomas Tam is also the founder of uh, Kini Ari. So he was uh, such a force and is such a force, and people like me, we are, all, we are still standing on his broad shoulders. So thank you, Dr. Tam, for everything you've done for us with uh, ACV and now here with Ari. As you see, I was at ACB, I was looking to rekindle dormant creative pursuits in addition to discovering New York City's Asian American arts and activism community. And the last of my uh, creative pursuits was um, songwriting and um, playing in punk rock bands as a teenager. For any friends from Flushing or from Flushing High School, that was the band The Grips, and this was us uh, at the bitter end in, uh, in Greenwich Village. When I moved to ACV from the music biz, I started to really get involved with New York City's Asian American arts and activism world. And one of my first tasks was to help Jessica Hagedorn and Daryl Chin with the series called Talk and Cheap. And the series' first guest of 1988 was David Henry Wong. He was to read from his play And Butterfly, the play that would make his Broadway debut the following month. The ACV Talk and Cheap reading was the first NYC public reading from And Butterfly. As David Henry Wong read startling passages from his play that would soon redefine the parameters of artistic explorations of East-West socio-sexual political relations, I was buzzing with a feeling I had not known since first hearing the Who's Tommy or David Johansson's Funky But Chic. Yes, as uh, culturally sheltered as it may sound, it wasn't until the age of 25 that something besides rock and roll had as much of a primal and intellectual impact. And for those of us fortunate enough to be in the room that night, the first NYC public reading of M. Butterfly just changed everything. For those of us who worked in the theater or in any area of Asian American arts and activism, M. Butterfly became one of those seminal works that redefined the world into before and after. David Henry Wong's powerful play proved that there was a place for our voices and visions on the biggest theatrical stage in New York City and the world. And Butterfly would go on to win the Tony Award Best Play for David Henry Wong and a Best Actor Award for star B.D. Wong. As with this writing, Wong and Wong are still the only Asian American theater artists to win Tony Awards. That has to change. The morning after that provocative first public reading from M. Butterfly, I decided to apply for a playwriting workshop instead of the screenwriting workshop I'd strongly been considering at the Writer's Voice. That was the great creative writing program of the 63rd Street YMCA on the Upper West Side. While I had longed to see myself and my community's concerns on the small screen, 
like here, as well as on the silver screen of cinema, growing up in Flushing, Queens, in an immigrant Chinese household in which only, parent, only one parent spoke fluent English, meant that Broadway and theater could not have been more remote. Yet, less than a year after a worldview-changing trip that the Empress Mother and I took to China in 1987, I took the first steps in a most roundabout journey to devoting my professional life to theater and playwriting. And the more I thought about playwriting, the more I found this form to mirror what I loved about rock and roll, and most distinctly, what I revered in rock and roll songwriters. Both the playwriting and songwriting process alternates between the solitude of artistic inquiry as a writer, and then leads to the collaborative process of creating live performance. Plays are also like songs in that they can be reinterpreted in every different genre, idiom, and style. At the, end of, at the end of the day, playwrights and songwriters are also witnesses to and portraits of history. As I was always equally captivated by the cathartic performative power of rock and roll, gravitating to theater was also like diving into the sea from which the river of rock and roll flows. A few days after seeing one of the first M. Butterfly previews, I was accepted into the playwriting workshop at the Writer's Voice. A few weeks later, still buoyed by the zeitgeist confirmation of M. Butterflies becoming this amazing, barrier-breaking, history-making Broadway hit, I practically floated up the stairs of the Y, through the swimming pool chlorinated air of the 63rd Street YMCA to my first playwriting class. It was a magical time for a Chinese-American to begin their journey as a playwright. Okay, this is um, this is the production poster from the New Rican Poets Cafe production of uh, The Gong Hei Kid, and uh, we'll talk about that. Actually, some um, uh, people very much still part of the Asian American arts community are in this. Um, uh, left right, that's uh, Victoria Lin Chong. She's a great playwright and performer, and, and, um, and seated is uh, Ken Leong. He played the uh, the Gong Hei Kid, and that's uh, Alexander Storm um, on the right. And, um, I wasn't supposed to be in the picture, but for some reason, I think the person playing uh, the character of the brother wasn't there. So for the photo call, I just jumped in. I wasn't, I wasn't bombing my own promotional poster or anything. Further witness to how Asian American arts and activism were gaining a wider appreciation in 1990s New York City was when The Gong Hei Kid became the first play or full-length performance work written by an Asian American to be presented at the historic New Rican Poets Cafe. This was also my first full-fledged production, not just a one or even three-night stand. Following a workshop at the Multicultural Playwrights Festival of the now defunct Seattle Group Theater, where I was honored to work with the late great Native American playwright William S. Yellowrobe Jr. as my first dramaturg, that was still amazing, the play was ready for New York City. The New Rican Poets Cafe is the storied center of spoken word activism founded in the 70s by a group of New York City Puerto Rican artists and activists led by Miguel Algarín and Miguel Pinheiro. In the early 1970s, Pinheiro became the first Puerto Rican playwright to be produced on Broadway with short eyes. This was almost a decade before Lin-Manuel Miranda was even born. It was an enormous affirmation for me and many of my fellow Asian-American spoken word, theater and music artists that Miguel Algarin, as well as the cafe's theater and poetry slam directors, Rome Neal and Bob Holman, welcomed us, welcomed us to that singular, singular community that is the New Rican Poets Cafe. Around this time, I also became the host of the 
Wednesday Night Poetry Slam that they called the Slam Open, as well as one of Bob Holman's backup hosts when he was out of town for the big Friday Night Poetry Slam that they called the Open Slam. In late 20th century, late night television parlance, you might say I was Joe Garagiola to Bob's Johnny Carson. That's a very real old boomer joke, right? So standing on the stage of the slam night or any night in the cafe, you could feel the power and energy in that room. I find myself, I found myself in the center of a community of artistry with a singular level of primal talent and diversity that I had not witnessed before or since. The cafe felt like the heart and soul of New York City's gorgeous mosaic. For the New York Poets Cafe production of The Gung Hei Kid, I also had the added bonus of being the rhythm guitarist in the production's punk rap pit band. Before each performance, director Rome Neal would gather the entire cast, band, and crew into a circle on one of the upper floors of the cafe. There we would share what we were grateful for or troubled by that night. The circle check-in concluded with the Brio-style corn response chant of the chorus from that Rare Earth song, I just want to celebrate. On opening night, I became very emotional during the circle check-in. I started crying as I lamented the fact that my dad would not physically be in attendance for this or any of my openings. The tears continued to flow as I shared how grateful I was for everyone in the circle and all of the spirits and humans downstairs in the cafe, especially the Empress Mother and Herman, who were in the house that night. For this production, we used an audio recording of the Empress Mother singing People's Lives Like Dreams in Cantonese. During the pre-show curtain speech, Roman Miguel graciously introduced the Empress Mother, and she took this flashy bow for the ages. I guess I had to get the showbiz gene from somewhere, Every night, the prologue and epilogue ended with a recording of the Empress Mother singing People's Lives Like Dreams in Toysan Cantonese. On opening night, the voice of the play's prologue and epilogue, as well as the embodiment of its conscience and soul, was seated at one of the cafe's front tables. Throughout the show, I kept watching the Empress Mother and Herman. I smiled as Herman visually reacted to the show's laughs and cries and everything in between. But I was even more moved by the Empress Mother's static facial expression. While she was clearly proud to be there, and I couldn't have been prouder to have her there, it was a heartbreaking visual and visceral revelation of the language barrier between us all these years. As mother and youngest son, we shared so much. Yet as a writer, I could never fully share with her what was most important and vital to me. I regretted even more that I could not fluently speak, let alone write any dialect of Chinese. In the end, the gorgeous mosaic was the most healing, empowering, and exhilarating period. It made most of us accept and process a more nuanced and complex portrait of who we were as a city, a society, as a world. Yet inevitably, every answer of affirmation that the gorgeous mosaic offered posed even more complicated questions. The underside of the gorgeous mosaic era was the fight and resiliency required to celebrate and represent our unique identities, communities, and cultures. Scenes and worlds often change on a whim. Other times, it takes an epidemic and everything in between. Each and every performance and work of art is a statement and celebration of being. All representation is personal 
and political. We must seize the moment and realize it while we can. Thank you for listening to this reading. I'd love to invite Anthony in for, the, for some conversation. And um, thank you so much. Thank you very much for a wonderful presentation. Uh, mm. The memoir was wonderful. I just recently thank finished you. it. Uh, congratulations. Uh, thank you so much. Now, your memoir takes on, I guess, I would say three different levels. One is parent-child relationship. Uh, the middle, second one would be sort of your uh, journey, uh, finding yourself uh, identity, going from mm -hmm. music to into the arts, uh, playwright writing, and then I guess the the, the most recent phase, sort of uh, your wife's and yours relationship, and how that took you later on into sort of uh, this creative process, and then uh, returning back into Asia later on to present your work mm -hmm. together as, as a, a team. Uh, just to talk a little bit about the uh, uh, parent-child relationships, uh, you and your father had a unique one uh, as you were growing up. You were uh, you yourself uh, one out of five children in the family, the youngest, uh, okay. and then there's a sort of age gap between you and your uh, next sibling, I guess, uh, Herman. Um, <laughs> What kind of relationship did you and your father have? Like the dynamics, you know, being the laundry. And then in terms of your, your father, uh, his relationship with your mom, because it was actually a very unique one uh, uh, in terms of how they got together. It was sort of an arranged marriage out of sort of uh, paper documents as well. And yes. they themselves as, as a paper son. Yeah. Right, right. No, all that, um, yeah, there was, there was a big gap between, uh, in some ways, the even though there were five siblings, it almost felt like two families because you know my old my um, my oldest brother is like uh, fifteen years older than me. So uh, when you're a kid, that that's a galaxy, you know, fifteen years. So it almost felt like the, there was the first family of the uh, siblings one, two, and three of uh, Jean, Jane, and Vic, and then Herman and me. And um, you know, and my you know all immigrants, particularly you know Chinese immigrants at that time, had a tough time. And uh, and so there was, there was so much to battle through. Of course, they were just coming off the end of the Chinese Exclusion Act and so many other things. And so for better or for worse, my dad was very tired. I think both parents were very tired by the time I came around. So my father was kind of distant and um, and not very communicative with me. So he let me do do my own thing. And so um, that, that became a, a, a very different kind of thing. Yes, my parents had an arranged marriage. And uh, it was, it was uh, at least during my times, it was not a very... Uh, a very, a very happy marriage. But uh, it's funny, you know, we go show with your, with your family, with your older friends. You know, we all go through the same things, but yet we have completely different interpretations of them. And so, in writing this memo, it's fascinating to learn about more about my family. And one of them is, um, is the father of um, he recently passed away, but one of your other guests, uh, Skylar Chin, who's been on this program. Uh, his father was a long time. Um, he just passed away sadly in October, but uh, he was a long time Chinatown activist and artist and. Um, Talking to him about my uh, my family gave me a different perspective. Like at that time, uh, our Flushing, we lived in Flushing, but our, our cousins in Chinatown, they said like going out to Flushing was like going out to the country. They couldn't believe it. Like they could ride bikes out there and everything. It was like, it was like a different world. And it's like, and, then, and they said, and, and your father was the life of the party. He would like try to dress like Sinatra and play these old swing records. I was like, he did? Like I never met that guy, so it's, so it's amazing how you you know you keep learning just by sharing stories like we do. So that that came came out of that, and then um yes, yeah, so so it was a it was a very different. I think for, you know for better and for worse, I I had a lot of freedom as a kid, and so um 
he was also very strong with the other kids. So it was, it was a very different thing. And just, um, it was very, um, very divided. Like I saw they had total, complete commitment to the family and they were in the laundry. They were there, you know, six days a week, to 12 hours a day. Yet I never saw much between them. But uh, that's, of course, my interpretation of it. Yeah, um, I remember a funny scene in the uh, memoir where mm -hmm. you and your brother were talking about uh, Bruce Lee and David Carradine's yes. Kung Fu. Yes. And uh, you, you were very adamant that uh, Tai Chang Kang was much more better, than, more real than Bruce Lee. And then your father, who uh, you sort of labeled uh, in the memoir of being mostly silent, you know, being this silent, you know, sort of mood all the time, right? He actually right. uttered that no, Bruce Lee is real. <laughs> yes, he he had he had to draw the line at that. You could you could tell. I guess I was always drawn to the that that chapter is called uh, "Everybody Was Kung Fu Fighting or Faking It." So, uh, yes, no, that no, that was true. Of course, um, as as a as a seven, six or seven year old, I wasn't aware of all the parameters of of uh, having casting David Carradine as a uh, as Kwai Chan Kane, and uh, of course I, I didn't realize. Uh, Bruce Lee, uh, ben, he was just such a force that I think he was uh, much more for me than I can handle. Also, that also showed uh, Herman was, uh, at that time, we, we were like seven and, uh, I guess, eight and 13. And um, so Herman was much more street already than I was. Uh, so he loved Bruce Lee and even put his poster on the wall and he got, he got, he got chucks. And I was like, whoa, this is, this is a little too tough for me. I'm going to stay home and watch TV and stuff like that. So, so I gravitated towards Kung Fu because I just, I was just so happy. Uh, as little as little as that was, and as uh, deceptive as that was, it was a. Uh, I was just so happy to see a Chinese hero on TV, even though he was uh, played by David Carradine. Of course, I, I know now about all the uh, all the issues involved with that casting. And ironically, uh, years later, uh, after David Henry Wong changed my life with M Butterfly, um, I, he changed my life when, when he led the protests against Miss Saigon for casting Jonathan Price in that role, and. Um, and not just casting him in that role, but also um, he was going to come to Broadway and play play this role with uh, prosthetics and with bronzer. And so I, I joined those protests. And uh, so ironically, after preferring Kwai Chang Kane as a kid to Bruce Lee, there was protesting Miss Saigon. But for everyone, direct action always works. As a result of these uh, protests, I actually got into NYU's graduate musical theater writing program. Because uh, to NYU's credit, after the, these protests, they, uh, they reached out to get... Uh, Asian uh, composers and uh, librettists, lyricists for their program. So it was an amazing thing. So that's uh, how David Wong, Henry Wong changed my life twice. And uh, and yes, and we we all grow. Like I I, I, I would fully understand all the parameters of uh, casting a David Carradine in a, as, as Kwai Chang Kane now. But as a child, it was it was very different. And yes, that's, um, yeah, my dad only spoke up then. He said, oh no, Bruce Lee is the real thing. I was trying to say, no, Kwai Chang Kane is great. But uh, they were having none of it and they were right. Uh, just as a follow-up, so uh, you and your father had this unique relationship. Uh, he passed away when you were still young, in the high school years. And then sort of in the memoir itself, there's some, the, the, the relationship in regards to your mom is sort of like, a, a, you know, before he passed away and after he passed away, you know, period. You know, the, you know and then uh, you, you spend a, a large amount of the memoir uh, discussing your relationship with your mom in the later years. You ended up taking care of her in her, you know, uh, the end years. Uh, maybe you want to discuss a little bit about that? Sort of, you mentioned it earlier. You did have a, uh, you went back to China with her during the 80s. 
that right. was a sort of culture shock for you. But to her, mm -hmm. it was sort of returning back home, right? She was like, the, yes. the, you know, she enlivened, right? Versus while she was right. here in, in, in New York City. And then you yourself uh, returned back to China later on. Uh, 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 well, you went before Tianlin Square happened. Uh, but then you yes. returned back to China later on and also to Hong Kong. And, uh, you know, you sort of saw the changes in the culture, society, and, and, and the way people uh, acted towards you as a uh, American-born Chinese, someone who can't speak Chinese at all. And, yeah. Yes. No, absolutely. The, the first part, yes, the, it was a very different uh, life with my mother after afterwards. Uh, obviously, be before... Well, my father was still alive, and my my father passed when I was fourteen, so I didn't have a lot of time with him. But uh, sadly, during that time, there was, it was a very uh, a very antagonistic, you know, combative relationship between my 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 parents, and so they were there was a lot of fighting, a lot of uh, a lot of tension in the air. And sadly, when my after my um, my dad passed, you know, my my mother really uh, opened up more. She you know she goes also two things of the enormous transition to her, her husband dying also at that point we uh we sold the laundry so she no longer had to work in the laundry so she was a, a different person and by that time my my brother herman was also out of the house too so it's really then it became almost like from this huge family to just uh, me and my mother and it became a very very different um different relationship and but it also helped keep the in perspective like it's in the one thing when i started getting into into my punk rock phase and i would uh, my nails black like freddie mercury and try to look like all those people she just looked at my black fingernails and said, ha, 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 that. So, you know, she really put things in perspective for me that way, too. So that was that. But then it was very interesting. Uh, just as I read earlier, growing up, I never imagined I would, I would even go to China, let alone do theater workshops there and then perform there. And but also the same thing for my mother, because remember, she like so many toys on immigrants. They only saw their village and maybe Guangzhou and uh and Hong Kong for a few days, and then they were on 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 their boats to come to America. So they didn't they saw very little of China also. So she was also thrilled to see some of that. And it it really brought things full circle because I came, I went there as the same age as she was when she emigrated to America. So that 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 changed everything. So we and also you know I, I regret it now, but when I was younger, I, I didn't learn to speak Chinese, and I, you know you just wanted to fit in with, with what's what's around you. So I, I didn't I came to Asian American arts and cultural things much later in life. So that's uh, where that came from. We have a question from Jean Leung, who says, what happened to your brothers and sister? In particular, what happened to Herman? Okay. Hi, Jean. Thanks for being on here. Well, uh, one one brother is here with us today. Uh, Jean Hang is on this call, if he wants to say. And my sister, she... Um, she she uh, lives upstate outside of uh, Syracuse, and uh, she's raised uh, two two uh, wonderful children. And she's a uh, she's a grandmother now, and so she, that's where she is. My brother Vic, uh, as, as we were talking before the break, he um, after founding the first, to my knowledge, the first bonsai store in New York City, Bonsai Dynasty, that was then on the corner of Thirtieth uh, Street and Sixth Avenue in Manhattan. Uh, he does he had, he still runs a bonsai business in, uh, in Connecticut, so he lives up there. Um, He's also a, a grandfather now. He has his, he has two kids who are, uh, they have kids and one on the way. And then my brother Herman, he's um he's a still a professional musician and, and a guitar tech. He's on the road with um with uh he's gone on the road with, with uh, Bob Dylan with Paul Simon, so he's done a lot of that out in the LA area. And my brother Gene was on this call, I believe. Um, he's he worked many years with uh, Domino Sugar and uh, in Baltimore, and now he's, he's retired too. And he's a uh, he's also a grandfather. So. That's a little roundup. Hi, Jane. Thanks for being on. <laughs> uh, Cheryl Fish uh, typed in her question, but I'm going to allow her to talk so she can ask you directly. 
Hi, Cheryl. Cheryl? Hi, Alvin. So, um, thank you. A fellow Flushingite. A fellow Flushingite. Yeah, thank you. It was interesting. So, my question involves Flushing. Um, So, for me, Flushing High School and the SING program and the theatrical Mm -hmm. program and the forum newspaper shaped me a lot as an early writer. I wondered if you were involved. You were a few years behind me. If you got involved in a lot of the theater productions, any of the writing or... Or what, what influence did Flushing High have on you? That's what I guess I'm... Oh, oh absolutely. No, then, uh, hello, Cheryl. Thanks for being here. And, uh, no, Flushing High School and, and the Forum had an enormous impact on me. Like, uh, part of my life being changed by... Uh, in many ways, uh, my life was changed by two Davids. So, of course, we talked about David Henry Wong a lot. Then also, uh, David Johansson really changed my life because um, as a teenager, um, I was the, the features editor of the Flushing High School newspaper, The Forum, and I was a huge David Johansson fan, and um, he let me interview him for the paper. That was my first interview and first sort of a foray in the music business, if you will, and that really changed my life. And he was so great in so many ways. Like a little story, I would, uh, I used to be part of the show. I would carry him on my shoulders when they would do the the, uh, the real punky cover of the Four Top song, uh, Reach Out and I'll Be There. I would turn turn around, my back to the stage, give my glasses to my buddy, Sheldon King, another Flushing High School friend, and uh and I'd back at the stage, and David Johansson would jump on my shoulders, and I would carry him out into the audience. So uh, after doing this, he was very nice to give me um, an, an interview. And um, it's actually, it's even in the Queen's Chronicle today that um, they ran a story. And they said, uh, but he was also, he was such a great guy. But because uh, also, at that time, a lot of us said, oh, we, you know, we just want to do punk rock. We don't want to go to school. But he, he really encouraged us to stay in school. So he was really, he looked out for us. So that was a very changing thing. So that... Getting to know him really, uh, the Flushing, being able to do that interview for the Flushing High School Forum changed everything. And yes, I was in Sing. I was, um, I played guitar and Sing. Those are some of my first uh, theatrical things. We, um, we talked him to doing covers of, uh, we did like a, a version of a cheap trick song in Sing. And we did like, a, we also did, uh, some, some, uh, David Johansson New York Dolls material too. So, um, uh, no, Sing, Flushing High School was an amazing place and it, uh, it really shaped up so many of us too. And it was, it was a great, great place at that time. And, um, Still in touch with people from then. So thanks, Cheryl. Thank you. Uh, Brett Buell uh, knows that you're la- you later got connected with La Mama. Uh, you brought mm-hmm. so much to it. But what influenced you at the 4th Street Theater? Yes. Hi, Brent. Thanks for being on here. Um, hello to Janice. And uh, yes, in some ways, too, um, I get into in the book where uh, after getting involved with After Seeing M. Butterfly, I started also checking out a lot of the downtown theater. And because to me, in addition to finding parallels between uh, playwrights and uh, songwriters, I saw a lot of parallels between a lot of uh, the downtown performance art at that time. To me, I said, oh, my God. It, it, of course, it had been going on for a long time, but I hadn't seen it. And I was like, like in the um, mid-80s, mid to late 80s, people like um, like Holly Hughes, all these, all these great people like uh, Split Bridges, Lisa Crone, and the Five Lesbian Brothers, they would, they, they had, for lack of a better term, what I called this uh, punk rock energy. It's like the punk, the performance art, downtown theater had a lot of punk rock energy. And it's like, oh wow, there's a place for this uh, artistic expression and you know audience development besides a two or three minute song. So that led me down to the downtown theater world. And then, um, yes, I was lucky to do some of my first plays at La Mama, and. Uh, and that that that, that was uh, after the New Yorkian, so that was a, that was a, a powerful time. It still is, and, and um, the downtown theater world really carried the torch from after the seventies punk rock era. So I felt that there was a real a real rite of passage for that. And so thank you for asking that. that. So that was really the way of it. And 
like everyone in the beginning, like, like you hear a lot of songwriters say that they perform their own songs because no one else would do it. I became a performer also because oh, I would write these monologues, these plays, and no one else was going to do it. So I had to do it myself. But uh, it led to another thing. Thank you, Brent, for being on and uh, for the great question. Thank you. Just a technical question. Um, sure. When did you decide to begin writing your memoir and how long did it take and sort of uh, what difficulties did you encounter in terms of uh, remembering these, you know, particular mm -hmm. memories, putting together what to put in, what not to put in? Sure. I guess what we what what a full circle was. Uh, I allu alluded to it beginning um, in the beginning of my reading, uh, but there's a whole chapter about it. What um what put things full circle was uh, working. Um, the book is called Our Laundry, Our Town, and, you know, and I'm trying to make it like like all the everyone on MSNBC. They've always got their their book right behind them. So I'm, I'm, we're we're trying to emulate that here. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how good a job we're doing. I'm just trying to keep up with Anthony. He's uh, he's got all the merch out. He's he's got it already. So. Oh, uh, what, 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 what that was, uh, so the our laundry part is, you know, is, a uh, from, of course, growing up in a laundry and my parents having laundry, but the our town part of the title is really about a number of levels, of course, getting involved in our town, the theater world, but also after me discovering that, um, our town actually has a lot of Chinese influence. Um, we proposed my wife, Wendy Wassell and I, she's a renowned theater artist that, um, that we could do a Fulbright specialist residency teaching our town to um to chinese and hong kong theater students and i and, um, and they said yes and then we got to do this uh, great residency where the students read hong they read our town and then they wrote and uh performed their own plays in response to that and um one great thing is uh the, the hong kong students they read our town which is a, a new england families in the early 20th century and they thought these have to be arranged marriages too that's their take on new england marriages but uh so, uh, so doing that while we were there, that was just amazing just to really tie it all together and, and just take one other step back before that. Uh, after my mother, after the Empress mother, my mother died in 2002. That was like, um, everything changed and I left Flushing. And for some reason, the play Our Town really spoke to me. And, uh, at that time, you know, losing a second parent, Our Town became profound. It became profound to me. And, uh, and so I started writing The Last Emperor Flushing to emulate, you know, the feel of it. And um, and then going, going back to Hong Kong. So we, uh, Wendy and I were in residence at a City University of Hong Kong on a Fulbright Specialist uh, grant. And while we were there, the uh, U.S. consulate in Guangzhou uh, invited me and us to uh, to perform, to conduct theater workshops there and to perform The Last Emperor Flushing in uh, Guangzhou. And yes, taking, being able to take a lot of our family stories back to China, that really felt like, okay, this feels like a nice cap to this chapter of my life, like the, the first 49 years, uh, the first quarter of my life, the first 49 years. So, uh, so, uh, so I said, yes, this, now I feel like this has the gravitas to be a book. And I also, I guess coming from the rock and roll world, I, I guess I use an analogy of a, after years of years of touring, it was time to make an album, you know, a permanent a permanent version. Like I love performance, and I love that theater is literally a common ground. You know, we're all in the same space, all breathing the same air, feeling the same energy and vibes. But uh, I also love the intimacy of an album, of a book. It was just one to one, you know, mind to mind, heart to heart, soul to soul. So I just wanted, wanted that communication too. So after finishing that and bringing, that sort of felt that chapter is full circle now. Now maybe this has uh, many different layers for a book and. Hope people agree. So we'll see. And then in writing it, it, it I guess that was uh, that was eleven years ago now. That was uh, you know I've been doing a lot of other things since then. But uh, 
it just took on many different forms and you know it started well then you and just researching it you research the historical things I talked to my brothers and my cousins and just to get different things about it and uh, and it's just amazing like again we go through you can go through some of the same experiences and it's completely different every time so that's uh that's what made said okay maybe it's time to make this a book too yeah one thing I liked about uh, as you were going through sort of your <clears throat> life you also did a uh Asian American history lesson for folks, right? Mm. In terms of yes. uh, Chinese Laundry uh, Alliance, sort of mm. your father's business and sort of how it was part of this collective group and how that went all the way back to sort of the times of uh, McCarthyism, communism, and that type of stuff. Mm. Uh, you also discussed Tiananmen Square, that's one thing. And then most recently, you talked about the Umbrella Movement when you were back in Hong Kong later on, right? So, sort of, you know, these historical sort of... Uh, times throughout you know american history and also asian history so uh, i i found that very great <laughs> a lot of information oh, great. but i mean one of the one of the things you did uh you mentioned earlier going on tour is that uh, i mean your your career trajectory has like you know different areas right you you've gone from you know the music industry uh how you uh, as a journalist Mm-hmm. You were one of two Asians sort of on the scene covering uh, uh, the music scene for folks. And then people uh, mistook you for another colleague and yes. referenced you as just, he just called you Chin, right? Uh, <laughs> on these, you know, particular tours and stuff. Yes. No, no, all those things are true. And, and thank you. Because, uh, and I guess the big challenge of, of a memoir is too, so I, I always think, uh, at least for me, like I love when memoirs they connect to a larger narrative of our times, what we're going through and uh, and, and as we all dig deeper, you know, whatever history you align with, uh, you, we we we'll always connect with somehow. So so it it, it comes to that. So I, I and and digging deeper, I always found uh, direct analogies between our own family history and our 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 cultural history, our our Asian American history. So just to find. Those, those those things was very strong and yes that did happen yes there were not many Asian Americans in the music business in the 1980s so we, we were mistaken for each other and it was uh, and it was bizarre to go through that at the same time go to China for the first time and then be treated like an outsider there so so all these things were happening and uh no but thank you especially being uh, with the uh, with CUNY Ari uh, appreciating the historical aspects of it too I thought that was very important just to tell our story not just our family story but our story as a, as a community as well one of the stories you tell while you were in China, uh, sort of, I guess it's reminiscent of like nowadays, right? During the anti-Asian, you know, sentiment that's going on, right? It's sort of, uh, who would you fight for if, you know, the United States was up against China and you were asked that right. during, the 80s during your trip and uh, you, you made a, a joke that flew over most people's heads back then, but yes. maybe you could talk about it. Yes, no, it really was true. Uh, somehow we were on this tour in uh, China with with my mother. Uh, they they asked us. Uh, we were our outdoor plans got rained out, so we went to a, a classroom, and it's in the book too, where uh, we we were invited to an English language classroom. And all of a sudden, the kids started. They were, you could tell I I I I hit a funny nerve with them, and then they started asking me. First, one guy said, uh, "Can we arm wrestle?" I was like, "No, we can't arm wrestle," and. Uh, and then they finally they also, they also started saying to me, yeah, I know this is back in '87, so it was very different than now. But uh, saying if there was a war between China and the U.S., who'd you fight for us? I was freaked out. And this, they all started saying, yeah, who'd you fight for us? I finally said, uh, 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 I'd move to Canada, and uh, and they didn't quite get that. So uh, so it was a um, it was uh, that was a solution. But uh, yeah, it was, it's amazing. 
in some ways how it was different, but now in, in the last few years with the with the rise in you know anti Asian hate crimes, it's uh where we're we've come full circle to this again. It's very uh funny. But I think uh the good thing of that is I always feel like the late so we have to say the late great Leonard Cohen always said there's a there's fine wine in every generation. And I feel that now that in some ways yes, there's there's been more attacks on Asian Americans than ever, and that's a tragedy, but I felt that, was stronger in many ways because there's uh, there's so much more Asian culture now, and, and we have such so many more responsive ways. Like uh, like just from the theater alone, like this year has been um, a blockbuster year. There's been like ten Asian American theater productions in the twenty one twenty two season. So I feel like I, I'd like to think responding culturally through the arts, and literature, and anything that's a the strongest response, and I'm very proud of how we're responding as a community that way, because I really feel to fight hate and fight ignorance in many ways, uh, the arts and culture may be the best way to educate. Well, tonight we're promoting your, your memoir, but let's also promote your most recent other product, uh, publication, Three Trees. Maybe you just want to talk a little bit about that, and folks who are interested about that could purchase it online as well. Well, th- thank you so much. Yes, uh, Three Trees is, um, is uh, the first of my uh, Portrait Play series, which is a uh, historical dramas about artists, and um, and just from what it's going to get a, a stage reading in the Monterey, California area in September. I believe someone's here from that, and uh, and what it, this one looks at the unique relationship between the sculptor Alberto Giacometti and his uh, one of his primary muse models of the fifties. It was a uh, the Japanese philosopher Isako Yanagihara, and um, this was produced at the uh, Off Broadway Pan Asian Rep back in twenty thirteen, and it marked a big step for me too, because I think part of um, the artistic liberation, and I guess the other part of uh, the gorgeous mosaic was, yes, we want to tell our stories, but uh, let's say, but also it also gives us freedom. Where, especially now, it's important where we want great representation, but we want we want freedom too. Like I, I, I love, I've always write Asian American stories, but I, I, I want to write other things to other characters, other themes, and uh, so Three Trees comes out of that, and it was a, uh, and it was uh, published by No Passport Press, and uh, that just came out last December, and uh, it really looks. I feel like we look at all different art forms and genres. In many ways, what we're all creating is a is, is a portrait, a portrait of what we're doing, what we're seeing, what we're feeling, what we're what we're thinking. So it just looks at that, and. Uh, I was carrying around for a long time. How do we capture portraitism on the stage? Because uh, while it's such an amazing intellectual process, physically it could be a little static. You know, they're just sitting or standing there. But then when, when you uh, research it, I found out the, in, the enormous influence that uh, Isaka Yanahiro had on Alberto Giacometti. I said, okay, this is the one. So that became that. And uh, yes, yeah, so, so thank you for asking about that, though, too. And that opened up a few, a, a few different things. So that's um, very proud of that play, too. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, we have a question from Heather Ng. Congrats on your memoir. Uh, of all the sections in your book, which were your favorites to write? And are you especially proud of any particular parts? Oh, oh thank you, Heather. Heather is, is, uh, is, is my niece, and she... Uh, uh, she was invaluable in the, in the in this writing process. She was she was um, she's a great writer herself, and so she offered many great insights. And um, I guess uh, because you know a, a lot of this started as a uh, two stage stage plays, uh, both uh, the Last Emperor Flushing and the Flushing Cycle, and um, that itself is my response to the the Kentucky Cycle. That was like this two night marathon back in the in the nineties. Uh, so I said, let's um, as the British would say, let's take the piss. So I called it uh, the Flushing Cycle. So we did that. So uh, some of the material was uh, I started to tell stories from my life in, in on those places. So in some ways, um, 
that was like more the adaptation than writing the newer parts. I guess um, the newer parts were more exciting, like writing about our time with Wendy in Hong Kong and my life with Wendy, period. And also, I'm very proud of the, the I guess the last chapter, it's called uh, Life Dances On, and that's taken from the great Robert Frank. He had a great film about uh, about his family in later age and losing members. And um, and Life Dances On becomes, uh, we try to make it like a dream sequence where it, the day after we uh, did that residency with the Hong Kong students, so we all got together, and I couldn't believe it. the first song they played to celebrate was a uh, was a uh, Queen's "We Are the Champions." I was, I was not expecting that, so we did a, a little uh, dance. So I just imagined from there that uh, we were just sort of really celebrating all of our lives, and it became a great a great vessel, if you will, for the finale of the, the memoir. I, I imagine that my parents were dancing with me in this, and um, and just imagine what it would be like to. To also convene and communicate with the spirits of my life, but also with the um, the spirits of the play Our Town, which itself has a lot of spirits in it. So, in many ways, I guess I'm proudest of the of the uh, of all the book, of course. But maybe to me, it's most exciting to write those later chapters because those had not been mined yet, had not been uh, processed yet as a writer. So, thank you. That's a wonderful question, as always. Thank you, Heather. Uh, Grace Toy uh, says, "Thank you for sharing." Uh, can you share your influ- uh, Can you share how your fluency of Hoisan has affected your life and work? Uh, by the way, the little Hoisanese that you've used on here is pretty good. Can't wait to get your memoir. Uh, just before you answer that, I just want to mention one particular one. Uh, it's in regards to sort of the dynamic between your two parents mm-hmm. at the laundromat when your mom would sometimes sort of disappear. Uh, when they would have an argument and mm-hmm. she would return by saying, oh, it's time to drink coffee. Yes. Cafe. And you said on clockwork that every day, 3 p.m., uh, when you and your brother mm-hmm. would return from school afterwards, you would, mm-hmm. well, I, I think it's pretty young to, for someone to be drinking coffee, though, right? But you would drink coffee <laughs> and also eat a, a, a bow, right, uh, together at 3 p.m. on the dot. And sort of uh, her saying, you know, sort of, uh, let's drink coffee, uh, you know, time to drink coffee, uh, is sort of her way of sort of just allowing herself to come back home after an argument between uh, her and your father. Uh, I mean, that's explored inside the memoir itself. But I found that pretty, uh, the the first time, you know, uh, that sort of caught, Mm -hmm. caught my attention. Right. No, you. No, thank you for for the close read, Anthony. You, you found so many great things. Thank you. Yes. Uh, and I think that had many meanings because, uh, many ways, Nim Cafe. You're, you're right. Even though I I wasn't always drinking coffee, I started drinking coffee a little bit later. But uh, Nim Cafe, I think she chose that moment because that was like the moment of peace from the work world. You know, it really was a time when when uh, when we could just sit and sit in peace and have that and have that with each other and. uh and yes, my my parents, you know, they fought a lot, and um, it, it, it escalated unfortunately to the point where my mother would just leave for a few days. I guess she would go to stay with friends or something, but uh, she would just leave. And and I and it's it's in the chapter called uh, "Disappearing Acts." So um, we would talk about that, and um, and she, and that every it was like a ritual every day at three o'clock was a coffee coffee break. And I think a lot of my brothers, I uh, know Herman does, maybe maybe Gene, maybe you still do. A lot of us still do that, have our three o'clock coffee. Though, uh, and uh, so I think that that was like a peace offering on many levels. It was like, yes, I'm home, but rather than just come in at the beginning of the workday, she came in during a, 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 a break from the workday when we'd all be together that way. So in that way, and um, and thank you, Grace. Um, I I rarely been complimented on my choice on ease, so I appreciate that. That that those comments on my choice on language prowess are very few and far between. But uh, 
in some ways, it's still been a mystery putting it all together that way, like putting the, uh, the, the toy song together with everything. And, uh, I, I greatly appreciate that, but it was, um, I, you know, I ever read it, but when you're younger, you just want to fit in with what's around you. And, uh, we were growing up, we were in a few Chinese families in Flushing. I know it's kind of hard to believe now, given the current state of Flushing, but that's what, what that was. But I thank you for that. And thank you, Anthony, for really keying in on these, these, uh, really significant moments. Thank you. Thank yeah. you, Grace. Uh, and Grace also mentions that P.S. She thinks the two of you may be long lost cousins. So <laughs> maybe you can have, uh, some communication afterwards, uh, at, you know. <laughs> Absolutely, we're, we're not that we're not that lost though. Too, we're in touch with each other, so we'll, we guess we will check that out. I think, <laughs> I, I think we're probably all related. We're all Tyson, yes. <laughs> uh, Carlene Romain uh, says, "Thank you very much, Professor Ng, and may you have a safe and blessed birthday on Tuesday." Oh, uh, we also you, have we also have Jane Mathers who says, uh, "Congrats on your publication! Uh, what a great intro uh, to your book and personal history." Uh, they love the pictures that you've uh, included inside your memoir uh, and also the valuable cultural history there. Uh, sorry they couldn't make it to the in-person event, but uh, yeah, they, they enjoyed tonight's talk. Oh, no, thank you for joining this too. Uh, this is, this is um, you know, and come, come back every Friday. This is a great series, one of the great series in the Asian American world and <laughs> New York world. It's a really great series. So thank you for being here for that. Thank you. I'm so, um, you know, you're always worried. As a writer, you always hope your work uh, just communicates with people, especially when it's your own story. So um, I'm honored by everyone. Thank you so much. No, well, just to let people know, this is actually the fifth time that Alvin has presented at the Asian American and Asian Research Institute. Some of the stuff that he mentioned earlier, uh, Three Trees, uh, The Flushing Cycle, uh, and his other work uh, is also available on our website. You can view uh, 2002 version of Alvin Ng all the way till present time on our website. <laughs> you know, he doesn't age, still the same. Maybe the hair is a little longer, right? That's all. But uh, yeah, you can visit the website afterwards. Just type into the search bar Alvin Ng and you'll, you can find the rest of his talks, uh, from all the way back until 2002. Um, wow. Yeah. Uh, Warren Lehrer uh, says, love the reading and writing and conversation. Uh, so many fabulous influences and references. Uh, some of the chapters grew out of performance text. Did you read other chapters aloud as you wrote them? And can you talk about that writing process? Yes. Hi, Warren. How are you? Yes, we, we did a few uh, Queens uh, shows together. He's a, he's a, a great uh, graphic artist, a great artist in, in many ways. I, I, I didn't do... Yes, a, a lot of it did start as stage uh, text, but then... Um, and in the prose stage, I I didn't read it aloud that much. Interestingly enough, I, I just was really committed to really uh, having it exist as, as a prose piece. So no, normally I I I I read aloud everything I revise, but the, this time I didn't do it as much for this. I I, I wouldn't read aloud as much. And um, it's been interesting now getting ready for these uh, book readings to be reading the newer pieces aloud. So yes, um, but I did find that. Um, uh, in the beginning stages, whenever I got to the dialogue parts of chapters, I was home because I've been a, a playwright much longer than I've been writing prose. So whenever it came time to write, remember and interpret and process the, uh, the conversations that are heard in my head and I remembered in my heart, then I felt really at home. So I guess in that stage, uh, I, that would be the talking pages of it. But um, excellent question. But yeah, but I, I did not uh, re revise a lot that much this time. Uh, let me just share onto the screen uh, for everyone who is interested in purchasing Alvin's book. There you go. We, uh, there's a 30% code available. The promo is there. You can uh, 
go to that particular website or scan the QR code and it'll jump you to the Fordham University Press website, uh, AIM30, to get 30% off. Uh, the book is available online without the code for $27.95. I looked earlier, the hardcover. Uh, and <laughs> I, I don't know how much is Three Trees available for right now? Yeah, Three Trees, is a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an actor's edition, of paperback. It's only uh, uh, $10, like 9 or $10. So that's available. If you go to my website, there are links to purchase it there. And also, I also try to push all these people to the, uh, the bookshop.org. That's a really, that's a place where you can really uh, support independent booksellers. And, uh, wow, maybe I'll, pu- I'll push them for my 60th birthday. Maybe they'll give an Ang 60 discount. We'll see if they do that. But, uh, <laughs> Well, so, uh, Jean Leung also asked, will there be an audio version of this book? Hmm. I, I would love to do, I'd love to do that. Yes. Um, not, nothing's in the works yet, but there, there will be one and maybe there'll be a film too. So, but they will, I'm working towards an audio book of this. Thank you. Yes. Okay. And we have one more slide, which is, oops, let's see. Happy birthday. Early happy birthday oh. to you. <laughs> well, thank you. That, that, thank you so much, and really, you know, for being here um, all, all these years too. So thank, thank, thank you, everyone at Ari and CUNY and, um, and Anthony. We've been, we've been down this road many times. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today for the uh, for the virtual online book launch of this. It's really, it's uh, it's still surreal that it's a book to me, and I'm just amazed about that. And, um, and it's so great to, to come home to CUNY Ari, where I've done so many things over the years. So thank you for having us, and thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Yeah, it was a wonderful read. And yeah, I encourage everybody to purchase it. Uh, let's help make uh, Alvin's upcoming 60th birthday a very happy one by making it a bestseller <laughs> uh, on the uh, Fordham University Press uh, website or you know Amazon or other bookstores available. Um, link is available on our website. Uh, you have the code ENG30. Uh, let's wish uh, Alvin a happy birthday, 60th. Uh, congratulations quite a feat and with that uh, enjoy your evening everyone Uh, remember to be an upstander if you see a fellow person in need and good night and have a good uh, reading at City Lore Alvin thank you Anthony thank you everyone take care